When archaeologist Howard Carter discovered King Tut's tomb in 1922, he also uncovered clay vessels marked with the symbol for honeybee. The honey he found inside the jars was completely preserved and still almost liquid nearly 3,000 years after it was buried. For centuries, honey has been used in everything from cooking to medicine, and we have decided to end this season's Food Friday series on a sweet note with a please explain that's all about honey and beekeeping. Joining us are Kim Flottam, a beekeeper, editor-in-chief of Bee Culture, and the author of The Backyard Beekeeper's Honey Book and also The Honey Connoisseur, and Amelie Tremblay, a beekeeper from Tremblay Apiaries in the Finger Lakes region of New York. I'm very pleased to welcome both of them to today's Please Explain. Hi. Hi, how are you? If and to uh, our, Go ahead. Hi, this is Kim. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. We're happy that you could join us. We also invite our listeners to join us. If you have questions about bees, honey, or beekeeping, you can give us a call at 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at WNYC.org or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Uh, I throw this out to both of you. I don't care which one of you answers. Does honey ever spoil? Could you eat that 3,000-year-old honey from King Tut's tomb? Absolutely. So is it just a matter of of storing it properly? Um, Storing it properly. The only thing that will spoil it is adding water. Um, Storing it in a cool place or uh, in contact with some sort of heat source will not alter it at all. Although I imagine finding 3,000-year-old honey is like finding 3,000-year-old wine. You don't drink it mainly because it's so historically important. (laughs) Yes. But, Kim, what happens when honey crystallizes? Does that mean that it is spoiled? Oh, just just the opposite. Uh, When honey crystallizes, um, what happens is is that the the sugar crystals in the honey solution, honey is a liquid... Uh, super concentrated sugar solution, basically. And what happens when honey crystallizes is that the crystals separate out and they uh, join together and they they eventually, if left long enough, will be a solid uh, sugar, honey sugar crystal. Uh, so when you see that in your jar, it's not spoiled. All it is is it's like, like uh rock candy, and all you need to do is to gently warm it, gently and slowly warm it, and it will revert back to its liquid, and it will be just as good as it always was. When you say gently warm it, put it in some warm water, or can I put it in the microwave? No. Oh, don't use the microwave. No, yeah. <laughs> uh, when, when you put it in the microwave, what happens is you get hot spots on your jar. If you've got a plastic jar, you'll melt your plastic jar, so don't do that. But if you, if you want to gently, what I recommend is, is that you get a, a medium-sized pan of water that will, um, when you put your honey jar in, will cover half to two-thirds of your honey jar. Bring that pan of water to a boil and then insert your, turn the heat off and then insert your honey jar and let the water cool. And you may have to do it depending on the honey and the degree of crystallization two or three times. But but that that won't overheat the honey, and it will slowly warm it to the point where it returns to liquid. Why can honey be toxic to infants under one? For signs of, it's actually from botulism, and they are too young under one year. Um, their stomachs are not able to fight it off, let's say. But mm-hmm. we, as adults, are actually in contact with that every so day. So there's a little bit of botulism in honey naturally? No, but honey is sticky. 
So mm. any particles of botulism in the air will very easily and quickly adhere to the honey. So after a child is one, the bodies are capable of handling it? Exactly. Is it true that in order to produce a pound of honey, a bee must collect nectar from two million flowers? Does that mean over the course of her life, one honeybee doesn't produce very much honey? Well, the, the life of a honeybee is quite short, actually. Um, they only live about 45 days. Kim, why is honey exclusively the creation of female worker honeybees? Uh, in, in, a, in the beehive, the beehive is, is, is set up so that there is uh, a reproductive female, that's the queen, and she lays eggs. When the eggs hatch, then the, the, the workers in the hive, which are all female, care for the young, and then as the young grow, they, they advance to making wax, then they advance to being guard bees, and finally they advance to being foragers. The male bees in the hive are only raised um, so that they can mate with queens from other hives and carry on the genetics of the queen that produced them. They don't mate with their own queen, which would be their sister. But all of the workers, by far, in, in the course of a summer, a colony is going to be 50 or 60,000 bees, and there may be 1,000 males, 1,000 drones, one queen, and the rest are all female workers. So. Uh, they they raise the young, they guard the hive, and they collect and process the food. And, and what are, that's why they call them worker bees. And what do the males do? They just uh, lie around and watch TV, sports. <laughs> Pretty much. <yeah. laughs> they uh, uh, they they do have many roles in a hive other than going out and mating, and and they they are they 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 help. Uh, well, they, in the winter time or in the in the cooler parts of the year, they're a heat sink. I mean, they're a they're a big insect, and they they help the hive stay warm. They have some level of of, of hive cohesiveness, um, and and when you've got lots of workers and lots of drones, the colony as an organism feels that it's that it's more complete. Um, conversely, when there's stress in the colony, when there's a dearth and there's no food coming in or winter's coming on and there's not enough food to feed everybody, the drones are the first ones to be sacrificed. Um, the it's hard to be a man. The plan for drones doesn't, isn't very good. My guests are Kim Flottam and Amelie Tremblay. They are beekeepers. We're talking about bees and honey on today's Please Explain. And our number is 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at wmic.org slash Lopate or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. This is the Leonard Lopate Show on WNYC. Emily, um, what are the queen bee's responsibilities? Their responsibilities are they lay the eggs <laughs> and they feed the larvae um, for the first three days with royal jelly. Um, that's mainly their biggest role, most important role. What is royal jelly? Don't you sell it at Trombley Apiaries? Yes, yes we do. Um, I would compare it to mother's milk um, for humans. So it's it's highly concentrated in, in minerals and vitamins, and um, it's considered a superfood, hugely healthy. But bitter tasting, isn't it? Bitter tasting and very potent, so you do not want to take more than a pea-sized amount. And the best way to consume it is to put it directly under the tongue. It will be immediately um, absorbed, and you don't get the taste buds involved, which is... 
more pleasant. And why would you do that? Be- does it have any special qualities? Absolutely. Um, in in many cultures, it has been said to help fight off cancer, um, longevity, stamina, fertility issues, hormonal issues, just to name a few. And has, have scientists proved that those things are true? There is a huge debate on that between scientists and people who believe in the natural remedies. Um, yes, but there has been some testing. And it's greatly used in uh, cosmetics, actually. It has been proven to help with collagen production in the skin. Kim, how does a honeybee choose which flowers to visit? Do some specialize? Well, uh, the, 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 the way that foraging is organized in a colony is that there are a group of bees that are or, uh, old enough to fly. And what they do is they, they are hunters. They go looking for flowers, and they're attracted by odors, by colors, by location. And they'll, they'll leave the hive, and they'll head out south. And they'll be 6, 8, 20 feet off the ground, depending on the, the vegetation, and they'll find a collection of purple flowers, and they'll go down and they'll check it out. And what they do when they check it out is they taste the nectar, they, look at, they, they sort of measure the amount of pollen, but basically it's aroma and the amount of nectar in a flower. So and they may go to a flower and say, this is not for me, and then just move on to another one? Well, if it's if it's not very rewarding, and mm-hmm. if there's not very much nectar, or if there's nectar but not very much sugar in the nectar, they make a they make a judgment, and and they'll try another flower and another flower, and they'll find the pink ones over here that are much more rewarding for the effort of flying out there, gathering and flying back to the hive, because it takes as much energy to get there as it does to get back. Plus, you're carrying nectar, so. They, have, they make a judgment in the field. It's, it's a call. And once they find the best flower that they can, they'll gather nectar from that flower. They'll take it back to the hive. And then they share it with other foragers. And, and they do. this is when they do, you've probably heard of the bees do the dance. And, and they do a dance that will tell other foragers in the colony how far away the flowers are, what the nectar smells and tastes like, and, and which direction to go when you leave the hive. So the, the bees that, they're, that are witnessing this dance, now you gotta remember it's pitch black in a hive. They don't <laughs> see this dance. They are feeling the dancer with their antenna. They are smelling and tasting the nectar that she's sharing with them. And the directions that she's going tell them, the, when I say direction, she's on a vertical surface and she's going not straight up, she's going at a 40 degree angle. Um, instead of straight up. So she's going at a 40-degree angle, and she's waggling her abdomen at a, at a given rate. The faster it is, the further away. So by the time she's done this 10 or 20 times, the bees that have been atten- uh, paying attention to her know how far to go, which direction to go, and how good the reward is going to be, and off they go. And then when they come back, they do the same thing. Now, is this, uh, Emily, a symbiotic relationship? Is the nectar there so that the bees will visit and then pollinate the plants? Oh, definitely. The plants have their own schedule, obviously, of, of how they go about their existence. But the bees, they will um, respond to that. So whatever's in bloom at that time, if it has an, you know, an important enough amount of nectar and pollen, because that's their food source also. But this is nature in a way, not only giving us honey, but also ensuring that we get fruits and vegetables and flowers. Exactly. Exactly. Hence the importance of 
protecting honeybees and being aware of, of the importance that they have. Should we take a few calls? Matt from Jersey City. Hi, you're on the air. Hey, Leonard. How are you? Um, so I was just wondering, we have a row house here, and um, there's a deck off the back, and our yard space is limited. And we've been talking about putting bees out back, you know, precisely to help support the bees and help our garden and everything. Um, but really the only place that we have to put a hive would be under the deck, sort of in the shade. And I was just wondering, is shade okay for for bees? And, you know, is that an okay situation? Is it a bad situation? Then one other quick question. Um, I was wondering if your guests could speak to some people say local honey is good for allergies. Mm-hmm. For allergies that you might have Absolutely. from that area for, because you might be allergic they, to the pollen of the plants yes. that the honeybees are going to, to so there's a get lot their honey? Of, there's a lot of controversial as to this because people say that you need honey from your exact neighborhood whereas it's actually local as long as the same vegetation grows so for example new york state anything from here to ohio is considered local and for allergies you want to take what ails you so you want to do spring in the spring summer in the summer fall in the fall but uh, but the honey will taste different from different places within that area. That is also true. And the flowers also alter the taste. It's kind of like wine. Now, he lives in a row house, but if he were living further in the country, wouldn't he have to be concerned that if he has a beehive, he will also be attracting a bear? That could be true if you're living in a... It would have to be near a forest or something like that. You can easily put up some sort of electrical fence, and that usually keeps the bears away. Hasn't kept the bear yeah, away the from my bird feeder. Was the, the hive being in the shade, and and th- that can be an issue. And, and if you can avoid it, you, you kind of mm-hmm. try to. And the reason for that is a uh, uh, beehive in the shade is going to have uh, more of a struggle with maintaining a proper level of humidity inside mm-hmm. the hive. And there are some things that like to live in beehives that like high humidity that you don't want living in your beehive. Mm-hmm. So. If you can avoid some shade or at least get partial day shade, you're gonna, your, your, your bees are going to be better off. But, but still, it's not a terrible, and if that's the only issue that you have, is it, the bigger question, is it legal to have bees where you are? Mm-hmm. And that may be a, a more of How a, do you find you know, that out? You have to call the local police station? That, the local town? Hall. Yeah. Well, okay. Uh, John from the Upper West Side, you're on the air. Oh, thanks a lot. You, you, you've already answered beautifully many, many of my questions. <laughs> That's our goal, John. <laughs> I'm always wondering whether that made it. The, the honey is, is, like, dense. It's not the color of other honey. It's so rich. It's different than, and I'm wondering if it's the salt in the air. Uh, I, I grow a lot of dandelions. I let them grow because I think they're so beautiful in my lawn. So for the whole early period uh, before the real hot time, I let that grow. And I'm wondering if the dandelions, because they're very attractive, the guy has to come several times and take whole big swarms, not big, but, you know, as big as a, you know, a fairly maybe three, three feet in diameter uh, swarms, and he has to come and collect his, his honeybees. Do they like this dandelion? Or what, what causes this tremendous difference in the honey that they produce there on Block Island? They love dandelion. Dandelion to them is like rock candy for kids. 
and they will be all over that as long as it's up and so beautiful and vibrant. Um, all the flowers, the nectar of all the flowers, they are different, and the sugar levels and the water levels are also different, and usually in the spring, they're lighter, crisp, and they get sweeter and heavier and bolder in flavor as you move towards the fall. And Kim, in your book, The Honey Connoisseur, which you wrote with C. Marina Marchesa, you point out that um, common minerals in rocks give the soil and honey plants a distinct taste. So, yeah, the terroir of where plants grow, and you can you can um, you can you can grow plants, identical plants in in where you are in New York. And, and bees will visit that because it's attractive, but because of the soil characteristics and the weather and the climate, you will get a honey that's going to be somewhat different than if you take that exact same plant and grow it in Ohio or in Missouri. And it has to do with the characteristics of the soil and, and uh, like I said, the enzymes. And it is the difference. Those are the differences, and, and they're subtle, um, and, and you need you need to practice to kind of find out those differences. But, yes, flavor is uh, on honey is, uh, is an art, without mm-hmm. a doubt. We have to take a little break, and we'll come back with more with my guests, Kim Flottam, who is a beekeeper, editor-in-chief of Bee Culture, author or co-author of a number of books, The Backyard Beekeeper's Honey Handbook and The Honey Connoisseur. Also with us is Amelie Tremblay, a beekeeper from Tremblay Apiaries in the Finger Lakes region of New York. Our number, 212-433-9692. We'll be back after this. And we are back with two beekeepers talking about bees and honey on today's Please Explain. Kim Flottam and Amelie Tremblay. And we are taking your calls at 212-433-9692. Judy from Westchester, you're on the air. Hi. Um, I'm originally from upstate New York near the Finger Lakes, and I understand from my friends who also are from there that the agriculture, it's it's heavily, um, there's a lot of agriculture, and there's a lot of (laughs) um, pesticides and herbicides, and there's kind of a cancer cluster yeah. in that area. Yeah, we've been hearing that uh, there's a, been a bee die-off. Uh, does that affect people like you, partly because of a chemical that uh, uh, is used in, in a pesticide? Well, first and foremost, um, our bees are okay because the, we are in actually a dairy farmland area. So we're right outside of Ithaca, and so we don't have a lot of agriculture um around our area but the 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 the, the thing is neonicotinoid neonicotinoids kim are they a problem in florida well i'm i'm sitting in florida at the moment i'm I'm actually uh, actually live in ohio um and 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 that that group of chemicals relatively new uh, on the egg scene, um, still being investigated, they are connected with issues with honeybee health. There's no doubt about it. The level of connectedness is is regional, where they're used a lot more um, 
for some crops, they tend to be more of a problem, but sometimes there's concentrations of them that you wouldn't suspect, and they're causing lots of problems. Um, they're, they're an insecticide, and they're meant to kill insects, and bees are insects, and, and, and that's sort of the bottom of the question is how, how much contact are bees having with these chemicals and other ag chemicals? Um, and it's, it's it, it, yes, it's causing problems, and, and the level of problems is, is different in different places, different on different crops, different on different, with different beekeepers on how they manage their bees. It's, a, it's not an easy answered question. I'd like to underline also that another thing that is endangering bees is there's been a huge um, appearance of varroa mites, which is something that beekeepers didn't have to necessarily deal with if you go back 10, 20 years. And that has been a huge, a huge problem. And what is what causes that problem? Um, mites are just mm. present. So these are mites that actually go into the bees? They go into the into the hive and they will and on a bee they're the size of a grapefruit so it's it, as if you I mean, would be carrying proportionally. something proportionally as if you would have something on your back the size of a grapefruit that's just uh, you know digging at you and they will cause mm. them to die Lauren from Queens you're on the air Hi thanks for taking my call um, I just took a beekeeping course and I'm wanting to become just a very you know, small-time hobbyist beekeeper, but I'm having a hard time finding a place that uh, people would be willing to live next to a hive, uh, you know, neighbors that would be scared of having bees near them, community gardens even that are afraid of some safety issues. Can you give some recommendations on how to convince uh, neighbors and others about the safety and the need for bees near them? Well, urban beekeeping is urban beekeeping is a different animal than where I live out in the country, and and finding a location is probably one of your greatest challenges. There are several options that I would recommend that you explore. One of them is community gardens, and they may not be as close as you would like, but it may be an uh, an opportunity to um, work with perhaps other beekeepers who have bees in community gardens, or uh, making an offer to. Uh, because your bees are there providing pollination for the people who have gardens there. So that's one of the things. The other one uh, to consider, uh, believe it or not, are, are schools uh, that are looking for science projects, cemeteries that have uh, vacant land and are um, would be willing to do that. And then certainly, I don't know what kind of uh, where you live, but on your roof or on a deck or um, uh, in a location like that, those work. All of those work, and and um, in an urban setting, of course, finding the place and then finding the people who will let you do that, and then um, being able to get there. And if you've got the things you have to consider, you know what parking is like. And if you have to go someplace and carry a bunch of things to your bees, how close can you get when you park there? And if you've got them on a roof or a deck, can you get equipment up there, keep it there, and then get it back down again? So these are there's a lot of considerations. But there are places in New York City, Washington, D.C., Pittsburgh that, that – um, uh, have bees in the city and make it work without endangering their neighbors. People with backyard gardens always tell me that the bees aren't interested in them. They're interested in the flowers. And so the bees yes. don't present any <laughs> danger unless you attack the bees. Mm-hmm. 
So is that pretty much, well, although uh, you have to do all sorts of things when you're a beekeeper, don't you? For yes. example, Emily, there's the smoker and the there's smoker, sometimes protective clothing. Protective clothing. Um, I still get stung. My but that's because you're going into the hive right. itself. I wouldn't be going into the hive. No, I, there's this pre-programmed fear in people that they've learned somewhere along the way to be afraid of these insects. But um, being stung is not, it's not that painful. Unless you're deathly allergic, you'll have a reaction and it goes away. And next week you won't even remember. Um, it's not a hazard. Should we go ahead, Kim? One of the issues with urban beekeeping is that you are in close proximity to a lot of people. And and when I'm teaching my class, when I'm talking about where are you going to locate your hive, probably the greatest obstacle you have are two 10-year-olds, and I dare you. <laughs> and, and, and therein lies another, uh, you know, I'm not going to say obstacle, but another consideration is, is, uh, is your hive safe from people who... Um, would want to do it harm or at least at least explore where you might not want them exploring. So that's another consideration where you set it down. Before we get to some more of the calls, let me ask you this. What's the difference between raw honey and processed honey? Ah, and is one better for you than the other? Absolutely. Um, raw honey means, in other words, it hasn't been pasteurized, I guess is a word you could use, meaning that it hasn't gone over a certain temperature. So, And why is it heated? Um, you would heat it, for example, up to hive temperature to be able to bottle it, to package it. That would be the instance where beekeepers would use a slight heat on it. Anything over like 110 degrees is too much. So should I assume that anything that I'm going to see in a supermarket is likely to be heated? Yes, it is likely, and you have to look at where it comes from. You have anything the, the, the to add to that, Kim? Uh, uh, the people who process raw honey usually um, are are very good at labeling it as such. And, and as Emily said, you're going to warm it to 100, 110, and that temperature is is been kind of arbitrarily chosen. But uh, basically, it's about as warm as a beehive is going to get in Arizona on a hot day. Mm-hmm. And and that's a natural temperature. So if you go if you heat warm your honey to a hundred, and then you you coarse filter it, and I'm thinking something almost like a colander that coarse, yes. so that if there's any foreign objects in there that you don't want in there. You're not you're not removing the pollen. You're not removing the enzymes. You're not removing any of the minerals that are naturally in the product. And what you get in a jar of of raw. Uh, honey is something that hasn't been heated, hasn't been strained. It's mm-hmm. been sieved or filtered. But um, it's uh, it's honey the way the bees made it. Mm-hmm. Now, a number of listeners have called in with questions about having their own beehives. What supplies do you need to start beekeeping in a backyard or in a country home? Well, you definitely want to start with a nuke containing bees and a queen, a hive tool, a smoker. Can you just go to a store and buy those things? A lot of a lot of stores have online um, options. Uh, we deal with Dadant, D-A-D-A-N-T, which is one of the oldest beekeeping companies that we deal with, and they're very good. Um, and should I, do you need to get a smoker? It's probably wise to do so, yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
it could yeah. put some excitement into your day otherwise. But yes, it is definitely a good idea to do that. It's a must. I asked about processed honey. What about wild honey? Is it different from honey that's harvested from an apiary? Well, in our case, um, all of our honey is wildflower honey. Um, and we don't plant anything to go, you know, to to obtain a specific type of honey. We just let them um, roam free, freely and kind of go out and see what they can get. Let's see if we can sneak a few more calls in here. Tina, you're on the air. Hello? Yeah, uh, go I'm ahead. The air? Yes. Yeah, certain kind of honey from New Zealand, supposed to be very medicinal. Manuka. And it's very expensive, $60 a small bottle. Yes. Is there any truth to the medicinal quality of the New Zealand honey? What you're talking about is called manuka honey. Yeah, right, right. And it comes from a tree that has been uh, proven to have medicinal benefits, yes. Oh. It is, however, not local and will not help with allergies or anything going on here. Um, the taste is very special. It is very expensive because it comes from overseas. Um but it is, yes. It, it, I agree that it is medicinal and beneficial. And, and, and so what's the money for when you're buying manuka honey is the level of the uh, the compound in it that is uh, medicinal, and it's sold with high levels, medium levels, and low levels, and you're going to pay accordingly. And and um, so if you're purchasing that, watch that that that. Um, uh, the levels of the medicinal compounds in there because you can pay a lot of money and not get as much as you think you're getting. We don't have much time left, but I do, do want to just one other thing. Kim, in the Honey Connoisseur, you offer ways to do a honey tasting. You suggest that tasters have at least six different varietals of honey. What kinds of tastes should we be looking for? Well, Emily did a did a kind of a, a good thing at the beginning here. She was talking about... <clears throat> If, if you're going to look for varietal honey, and briefly what a varietal honey is, is when I take my beehives and I put them in the middle of an orange orchard down here in in Florida, and there's nothing that bees can gather from other than orange blossoms. That, the honey that they make is going to be orange blossom honey. And if I, if I put my, my bees in cranberries, if I put them in any crop that's producing and they harvest exclusively that honey, then I've got varietals. So what, when we so do buckwheat honey, honey would come from buckwheat yes. and, right. uh, and right. wildflower honey would come from wildflowers. Well, wildflower is going to be a collection of a yes. whole lot of things, and that in itself is kind of a varietal. But wildflower honey from Ithaca, New York, is going to be a lot different than my wildflower here down in Sarasota, Florida, and certainly different near Cleveland, Ohio. So when I'm looking at a varietal, I want to be able to identify the, source of the flower source. And then, you know, I may just say wildflower honey, and I don't know what it is. But you're looking. what you're looking at is you're looking at aroma. Before you taste it, you're looking at uh, um, the, the initial taste when you put it under your tongue, and you're letting it melt and 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 then slowly slide down your throat, and it's going to uh, release some additional aromas, and you breathe in deeply and get those aromas, and then you swallow it and you wait for the aftertaste, and does it have a metallic aftertaste or a sweet aftertaste or a berry aftertaste? You put all those together, and... In the book and in other other, um, you have to be very quick. There's there's honey tasting wheels, just like wine tasting wheels, and it's you can say it's metallic and it's you know it, it has all of these different like attributes. wine, like wine, exactly. Thank you both so much, Kim Flodham 
And Emily Tremblay, we've been talking about honey on today's Please Explain. It's been a real pleasure. Yes, for me also.